We're going to begin the book of 2 Corinthians today. I've wrestled with this book for some time. It's the most difficult New Testament epistle that Paul wrote. It's the most autobiographical. At points, it's harsh. At points, it's sarcastic. Uh, it is, uh, let's say, the first seven chapters primarily are concerned with him describing his past ministry among them and the fact that he's become a new covenant minister and begs them to be reconciled to God. Great themes. Chapter 8 and 9, he gives us the most thorough New Testament teaching on giving uh, we have in the whole Bible that... Uh, Really, if you want to understand church-giving principles primarily, they're found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, maybe the happy chapters. By the time you get to chapters 10 through 13, it gets rather harsh because this is what's going on in the church. Paul founded this church in Acts 18, and uh, he's among them. And by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, this is his fourth letter to them. He'd written them one letter uh, to deal with an immoral brother. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that. After that, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Then another letter, a severe letter, described in chapter 2 of Corinthians here, uh, rebuking them for some of their behavior. And then we come to 2 Corinthians. So we've got two books that were, or two letters that were never published to us not scripture, they are off the scene, two epistles that God carried over for the church. And this is what's going on in that church. At one time, a brethren had come, most likely from Jerusalem, Judaizers, uh, undoing Paul's ministry, always uh, at his heels like barking dogs. They were there, and they begin this campaign. Paul is a false apostle. Paul is not the true blood. And they pointed out his weakness. They pointed out his suffering. And because Corinth was a health and wealth prosperity uh, city, it was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. They had a lot of money there. To be called a Corinthian girl was to be called a prostitute. Very immoral. A lot of traffic going through. A lot of wealth. And a lot, of, a lot of religion. I mean, they had gods everywhere. There were not, wasn't an atheist in the place. But religion to them had to make you wealthy, prosperous, healthy. It had to give temporal benefits. None of them wanted a religion that messed with their life. They didn't want religion for moral reformation. It was just like... Uh, I go to first church so I could make business deals and look like I'm a, a religious man. But it was health, wealth. They loved ecstatics. While it was an immoral church, when it had all those problems, here he is writing. And now we've got this Paul that's been beaten, shipwrecked, suffers, shares personal. It's the most personal insight you'll ever get to a, an apostle and a servant of God. More pastors probably have fled to 2 Corinthians for comfort as any other book because it tells you you could be God's man and suffer from the people of God you're trying to help. Because he writes them and he finally gets the majority of them to repent in their attitude toward him, but a stubborn minority keep holding out and he takes them on in chapters 10 through 13. And it gets brutal. It gets brutal. He is taking them on. They say, you're a coward, Paul. You're ugly. You're a small little Jewish man that you write bold letters, but you're a coward in person. And he says, you think so? I'm coming back, and we'll see who's a coward. I am not afraid of you. And he just lays it down. So you're going to come to sections that some of you that only come to church to feel good, you may not want to be there during those chapters. Because he's going to show you the gut-wrenching experience that he went through at that time. But today, we're going to look at chapter 1, 1 through 11, and look at God's purpose 
for our pressures. Let's look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Here Paul says three things to us. He wants us, first of all, to know who he is, who the Corinthians are, and who is his God. Two, he's going to give us two divine reasons why God permits pressure, trials, and tests in the life of his children the reasons for our divine pressure. Let's just look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's quite interesting. In other epistles, he starts out, he says, Paul, a servant. But here he says, Paul, an apostle. Because that was the thing being questioned. You see, if you want to reject a man's message and you can find no fault with it, maybe you could disparage his person. If we could discredit the messenger, the message must be false. That was the attack. They hated the gospel that said you're declared right before God apart from the Mosaic law, apart from works, good deeds. You are made right with God through Christ alone. And they hated the message, so they went after the messenger. He's false, he's not true, and we're going to tell you what his faults are. What's scary is the message is far better than all of its messengers. I can have all kinds of idiosyncrasies that drive you batty. It doesn't keep the truth that I preach from being true. And if you don't want the truth, you could say, it surely could produce a messenger like that. Don't blame it on the truth. They're just messed up. Or they just got those idiosyncrasies. You know, some people were born depressed. Some people have a negative personality. They were born with indigestion, and they were born with negative person. I mean, it's the makeup. I'm not picking on that. There are just some people have quirks in them you can't help. I, I remember a man that used to preach that had such effeminate characteristics that I had other preachers make fun of him, as it were. They said, one man said, what he needs to do is buy an old car and fix up a clunker and learn to get some grease on himself. Because he was raised by a mother without a father, and he truly had effeminate characteristics. But he was one of the most profound preachers of the group. He was powerfully used of God. 
his message like no power. He just didn't look like an Oregonian logger. Now, look what he says here. I'm an apostle. I'm writing to a people that are called the Church of God, called out ones that are located in Corinth. Tells you there's not just one universal church. I believe in the one body, the church, but I never go to a local church. Something's wrong. God's universal church has geographical meeting places. And so he was talking to this group, the church that was a scary church. But he calls them with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Were the members of the Corinthian church saints? He said they were. He said in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he said, you are saints and you've been sanctified. Past tense. Now, when I read about the Corinthian church, I want to say it looks like a full a church full of ain'ts, not saints. <laughs> How would you like to pastor a church uh, that they still visit prostitutes? That don't mess with them in the parking lot, or else they'll sue you. Uh, they're split up into four parties in the church. There's four different cliques. One meets around Apollos, one meets around Paul, one meets around Cephas, and oh boy, the Holy One meets around Jesus. And they can't stand each other. And the four cliques in that church, they're a little questionable about the gospel. They're in cliques, they're immoral, they're suing each other. Uh, I mean, it was a dangerous church to belong to. And yet they're called saints. How could that be? Because if you're in Christ, you've been once for all set apart. Now God spends the rest of your life teaching you to act like who you are. He makes you a son, now he teaches you how to act like one. And sometimes we don't act very saintly. And uh, I have to say this. I read... C.J. Mahaney lately on a book on humility, and he said something profound. He's quoting another writer who said, seldom do you ever hear God's people complimented, even by fellow Christians. Think that through. He said, seldom do you ever hear church saints complimented. Do you ever say anything good about the saints? Do you ever say anything about the most difficult person in the church? Well, by George, they're a saint. <laughs> I just feel like calling you a saint. You act so wonderful. The saints don't always act like saints. But they're saints anyway. And we need to start calling each other what God calls us. I'll give you an example uh, when I was going to seminary and I first started this church, uh, we had just disciplined a guy out of the church on Sunday night for living in adultery with a gal. And it was a thief. And he was openly proven to be that. So we just dealt with it, just starting the church. And, oh, man, we're dealing with this. We're dealing with that. And uh, I'm in a seminary class with a bunch of young bloods that are going to be theologians and they're going to be pastors. And... Uh, I'm going through this. I'm not telling anybody. No one knows what's going on in our church because I was always offbeat anyway. With Pentecostal roots, you can't be anything but wacko. And uh, so uh, we were in there, and all of a sudden these guys started spouting off. And they said, well, if, if we preached the word, we wouldn't have these problems. We're just not teaching the word. After I took enough of it, none of them were pastoring. They were idealists. I said, well, I guess Paul didn't preach the word at Corinth. I guess he just didn't preach the word. Surely Paul wouldn't claim that church. He did. He did. I've seen people do the same, come around the valley, and they think they're really helping me out. So they're saying, boy, your people aren't real deep in the word, are they? No, most have been pretty deep in sin. And they're learning how to act like saints. And it's a long process. Some of them still fight addictions. 
Some still fighting old habits, old habits of thinking, old habits of behaving, old relationships. They're in process, and some days they're a wreck. But they're still saints. Saints, you ought to amen yourself. You're still a saint, you wreck. Still a saint. So he tells them who they are. You're saints. I want you to act like it. Do this. Then he goes on and says, let me tell you who your God is. And he begins. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father or the source of mercies and the God of all comfort. Mercies was the most common word to describe Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. And mercy was the capacity to feel another's hurt, to pity someone suffering from any aspect of sin, pain, uh, injustice, to feel pity. Christ felt pity for the leper, felt pity on the multitude that was starving and needed to be fed. He was always feeling pity. He's showing mercy on those suffering. And here Paul is saying, God is the source or the father of all mercies. You know the reason some of you are still alive? Do you remember some of those nights when you were partying? You should have never come home alive. Some of those nights on the road, some of those road trips, you should have never made the curve. On that swimming incident, you should have drowned, but you didn't. Why didn't you? The God of all mercy kept you alive long enough to save you. He had mercy on you. He had mercy when you didn't know him. Mercy. And he's the God of all comfort. And this word comfort is a word meant to call alongside of a person for the purpose of encouragement, to give aid, to advocate for them. And so Jesus said, when I go away, I will send another comforter to come to my people. And here he's saying, God is the source of all comfort. Besides, he put the spirit in his people. And the same word is used, we put Christ in the third heaven. And when we translate it advocate, the word is comforter. I've got a comforter or an advocate in the third heaven that when I am overcome by sin, primarily when I'm being accused before God, I have someone that stands up, takes my case, and addresses my case to the Father as though he were my lawyer and said, I died for this man. There's no justice going to get him. I paid already. That's your advocate. That's your comforter. So God is the source of all mercy. He's the God of all comfort. And what does he do? What does he do with his people? Who is our God? Watch what it says here. Who comforts us in all our affliction. And the word affliction there is the word for pressure. It literally meant to put a weight upon, to, to press down, to heavy, uh, they used it in torture. They would put weights on people's chest so the chest would cave in. Uh, pressure, pressure. And he says, he looks on us and he comforts God's people in the midst of their pressures. And especially is this the testimony of Paul. And he's going to tell them, biblical algebra in suffering goes this way. God's comfort, your pressures, Others comfort. And Paul is going to say this. All the comfort I bring you Corinthians, I got it from God. And God channeled it through me so I could give it to you. So I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf. I rejoice in my weakness on your behalf. If I wasn't such a case, if I didn't have so many weaknesses, temptations, and, and feel so overwhelmed with the thorn in my flesh, God would not pour his comfort in me, but he did. And guess what? It's that comfort I've been passing on to you. Number one reason why God allows pressure. He gives it right here in verse 4. Look at it. Number one reason. Number one reason. 
He says it. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may not comfort anybody. <laughs> so that we don't show mercy. I can't hear you. No. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts me in my problems. Paul, Paul is saying, his own testimony, that it will enable me to comfort you in your problems. God allows you to have the pressures and problems you do because he, wanted, he wants to teach you by comforting you, he wants to teach you to become a comforter. The church ought to be full of comforters, and I'm not talking about a quilt. <laughs> it is a sin to come to these premises on Sunday in worship and say a discouraging word. Many a church hymn ought to be written where seldom is heard an encouraging word, home, home in my local church. To dwell above with saints we love, well, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Have you learned? Have you learned to become a comforter? You first have to have been comforted. God's the source, and he pours it in this saint of God going through the pressure. I begin to think of uh, comforters. Uh, for years, my sister was my uh, administrative assistant, and Donna was in the office during those years, many of those years, joined, and eventually when my sister retired, Donna became my personal secretary. And they both were wonderful encouragers. They were wonderful comforters. Uh, but, it, but it was really, I was struck by the people they comforted. Here Hazel was, a, a single woman, never married, uh, the oldest of us surviving children, the matriarch of our family, strong, didn't like to work with women. Give me the men, I can handle them. Uh, you know, that kind of, uh, uh, and I asked her why she never got married. She said, well, I never found a man strong enough to lead me. And I came back, well, you'd have to marry Patton. And... Uh, uh, a strong woman, a uh, strong Christian servant. And I noticed the Christian workers would come to see her, it seemed like, uh, discouraged. She was my personal exhorter, comforter all the years of my ministry. Uh, I mean, she held up my hands more than anybody in this church. None, none of you come close. My sister, my sister. Because she could infuse courage in you when you were beat up. And she could tell you, stand Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. God will deliver you. God will keep you. I mean, boy, if you thought about throwing in the top, whoa, no, no, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. We're going to, you stand. You don't give it. All right, all right. <laughs> I mean, very strong, very, and so workers would come in. And Hazelby, they went through Kleenex like you wouldn't believe. They'd weep and cry. People struggling with a class, struggling with this. It seemed to be so many people involved in some aspect of church work. Got hurt, got offended. Uh, it's not going good in their assignment. And, and all that, she seemed to be especially used of God to comfort those people. But we had Donna. Donna was a woman whose husband abandoned her and left her with three daughters. One daughter has broken her heart a thousand times. Uh, a gal that had been on the bar stool, a gal that had had many a tear, a gal that uh, had to go to the workforce to support three children, uh, a gal that had the struggles of a single mother and the heartbreak of a divorced woman. I mean, she had just the opposite kind of life. 
Hazel had always kind of been in the church, dedicated, pray the word. Donna had had great sorrows. Man, I'd look over. It seemed like every single woman or every woman having trouble in their marriage or, or have a child that was in trouble or they, all the very, very troubled people would go to Donna. And she's over there. And I'm thinking, girls, we got work to get done. You both run the counseling ministry. <laughs> Hazel's over here with the worker. Donna's over here with some broken gal fighting the bottle, fighting the unfaithful husband. So, boy, they go to Donna. And man, they'd pour the words. They'd encourage. They'd weep. They'd pray. They were encouragers. If I'm really broken and I haven't got it all together, Donna looks real good. She'll know how to encourage me. If I'm a discouraged, beat-up worker, I'll talk to Hazel. She'll tell me not to quit. She'll tell me not to throw in the towel. She'd infuse courage in you. And then I think when I first started the church, I've told this before, I, I'm always moved by it. It really happened. My father died within 10 months, I believe, around 10 months after starting the church. Cancer hit him, and he's our first funeral. But one day he called me and he said, uh, Philip, I, I want you to take me to a funeral in San Rafael. He said, I, I got to be with this couple. I got to go, got to go. Well, my dad was having chemo, nauseated, throwing up. Sometimes you pull off the road so he could throw up. Chemo was making him so sick. And, and I said, Dad, you have no business going to a funeral. You're a sick man. Why in the name of heaven do you want to go to a funeral when you're dying with cancer yourself? That's not for you. He said, I'm your father. I'm going to this funeral. Will you pick me up? I took him. We went over there. A lot of preacher friends we grew up with. A lot of guys. I'm in the back. I've been talking to preachers, swapping dates, swapping preacher stories, and meeting, hugging guys I hadn't seen since I was a boy. We were having a big time. And I looked down the aisle, middle aisle, and my dad was right there, and Paul Dixon was on one side, and Cheryl was the other, and they just had buried this seven-year-old girl, I believe. And he had them kind of in a huddle, and he's praying with them, and he's talking to them, and all this. And so finally, we go. We're going home. I said, Dad, why did you have to do this? Are you sick? I had to get him home as soon as I could so he'd throw up some more. I said, why did you insist? This seems impractical. He said, oh, it's easy. In the 30s, your mother and I buried two boys and there was no one to comfort. We were both the eldest of 10 children and you couldn't write home for any help. Mom and dad had nine at home still. They couldn't send money. We're up in El Dorado, Kansas, where it gets sub-zero weather, and I was so broke I couldn't pay the heat bill, so we burned tires to keep from freezing to death. There was a dust bowl, 1930 to 1937, there was a depression in 1929. The country was in the throes of everything. And God takes my two boys. My wife has a nervous breakdown. We're broke. We're beat up. We're aching. And when no human comfort was there, God comforted us. My mother still seemed like she went insane, but came back. He said, I owed it. I owed it to this couple. Let me tell you, Paul and Cheryl, I know the God who will comfort your heart. Because he found me and my wife in 1936 in Eldorado, Kansas, and he held up our broken hearts.
He's the God of all comfort. And he allows us our problems not to make us hard, tough, but to fill up our cup. Because people don't want to hear about your successes. They want to hear about divine comfort. Don't tell them how much money you make. Don't tell them where you live or what kind of car. When their heart's breaking, they need a word that says, I can get through this. Have you ever had God comfort you in the midst of your problem and you never thought you'd come through, but he got you through? Well, that's what he said. God is wanting to produce a family of comforters. Don't stand around like Job's comforters and tell Job everything. You must not be God's man. Uh, God's man can't suffer this much. You, you got to have health and wealth. And I'm telling you, these charismatics that teach that, they weren't around when the early Pentecostals started out because they were all broke. They were all Midwestern, and they're barely surviving. Nobody was talking to us about health and wealth. Just a bunch of poor people that God was our only treasure. There was no false hucksters trying to tell us we had to drive a Cadillac or we weren't God's man. You could actually own a Ford and be God's man. (laughs) He goes on. Two, let me tell you about an experience I had, verse 8. I was in the province of Asia, most likely Ephesus. Acts 19, they had the riot and nearly killed Paul. And while I was there, a sentence of death was handed to me. And the word for sentence here is used of an official report from the government, probably a death warrant. A death warrant, most likely, had been given to kill Paul when he was in Asia. And he said, this is it. I despaired of life. They're going to kill me. They didn't kill him in Ephesus. They wind up beheading him in Rome. But he said, I was in such despair. I was burdened beyond our strength. I despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this was for our purpose. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The Corinthians, just like Americans, were proud, independent, self-sufficient. Timothy Savage wrote a book on the Corinthians called Power Through Weakness. He said there's five characteristics. Rugged individualism and self-sufficiency. That was the Corinthian attitude. Rugged individualism, self-sufficient. Two, wealth was the key to status in society. How much money you make. Three, you must flaunt your accomplishments. Where you went to school, how much you're worth, what you possess to win favor with people. They were, if you got it, flaunt it. Fourth, a competition for honor and station and much boasting about your accomplishments. Fifth, believe it or not, a great boast about where you lived because your neighborhood would indicate your importance. This was the Corinthian mindset. Corinth was the Las Vegas, New York City, L.A., San Francisco of the ancient world. It's where you went to party. It's where you went to make money. It's where you went to be independent, cool, slick, we're on the latest. We got the bucks. We got the cars. We got the women. We're in the right place. What happens here, nobody's going to know about. A wicked, prosperous, self-sufficient city 
And here Paul came preaching a message of the weakness of God that he would die on a cross. This offended them intellectually. They threw it up in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Get out of here with this message of the cross. It's stupid and foolish. We won't allow it in our philosophy department. And now, 2 Corinthians. We've seen his apostle, and we've heard of his beatings of suffering. Don't give us a beat-up preacher and a beat-up an apostle. If God is all-powerful, surely he could display it in his servants to be all-powerful. And yet, an all-powerful God has this weak servant who says, I've got a thorn in my flesh I can't get rid of. I've got a treasure in a clay pot. I'm beset with weakness, fears, enemies without and within. As you go through the book, you're going to feel depressed. And he's telling you what he felt. And here he said, I'm telling you, I nearly despaired of life when I was in Asia. Why? God wanted to show me, maybe you've gotten a little bit too proud, Paul. I'm going to show you you can't get out of this in your own power. It's going to take my power. You've got to rely on me. It's where I find in the church, it's hard for people sometimes. I've not seen this always true, but I've seen people that are independent, self-sufficient, uh, not necessarily money, because I've seen people with money love God, serve. But this self-sufficiency, I can do it. And all of a sudden, they get in church work and, and a lot of business types. They say, I can't do it. I can't do it. No, because you can hire everybody you want or fire. In the church, we work with volunteers. We don't pay everybody. And you can't come in and buy a soul. Only God can save. Only God can change. And it involves weeping, intercession, pleading, mourning in the spirit, grieving, wanting people saved, changed. And your money won't buy them out. And your PhD won't set them free. And your buildings won't set them free. It'll take the power of the living God that can raise the dead to set them free. Only God can do it. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of men. We're messengers of a great Savior. But this God happens to have plenty of power. Try raising someone from the dead to see how much it takes. And know what it is to be wrung out like this. I remember... Uh, being so wrung out uh, in ministry that I, I despaired of ever continuing. And uh, all I had to offer God was moans, groans, and this is my prayer life. I describe my prayer life as a groaning time. I can't tell you anything intelligent that I said. I had prayer life at one time that was one felt like I touched heaven every time I got on my knees but I remember going months all I would do is put my nose on the rug and groan the church was in trouble my home was in trouble fighting for my girl my wife said I'm going to leave you I can't stay anymore I'm too broken if you don't want to go, I'm leaving. I said, oh, I, I can't give you up. I'm going to. Got her under a doctor's care so she could sleep because depression and nerves took away sleep. I offered the resignation to the elders. They said, you need to get away. If you still want to leave, we'll take it later. I was pressed, pressed, pressed. I saw no way out. Just give me my girl back. Give me my wife back. 
Keep Holy Ghost Hall. Keep the theater. Nothing to die for down there anyway. Just an armpit location. But I happened to love the congregation. But I was breaking. God broke me, and I believe he broke this church. That up to that time, I feel like we had been a doctrinal Bible institute. Come here, and we'll cut it straight. We're the straight, cut it church. But at that appointment for me, he broke me, broke the church. And it was only after that that black people started coming. It was only after that that uh, broken people, the word got out. We got an imperfect preacher in town. His family's not perfect. Maybe we could be safe there. It's hard to make it in the cut it straight church. They never have problems or they learned a hypocrite enough to never show it. The word got out. We were broken. And it's amazing how broken people are drawn to broken people. Broken beyond, I thought, measure. And I never forget on a Sunday morning at the Rio, and all of us here are trying to get over the nightmare of the Rio, that terrible location. But I, uh, I was right about here, and dear Malcolm Lee came up to me, and uh, he told me one other time, he said, Phil, I'll tell you, if I could find another church other than this that wasn't in the ghetto, I'd go to it. I said, thank you, Malcolm. <laughs> get in the ghetto? I said, I don't want to go to church in the ghetto. I said, it's all we can get. We're stuck. Then he said to me, in the middle of that, he came up and he said, Pastor, I want to tell you something. You don't want to hear this. But me and the congregation feel like we're watching you die every week. I don't think you can go much longer. I said, well, I agree. I think I am too. What do you suggest? He, he had none. And at that time, John 12 came to me. I said, you know, Malcolm, I'm counting on John 12. That unless the kernel of wheat dies, it abides alone. And maybe Valley's got to see me die before God ever does anything with it. I'm willing to die. Uh, maybe you'll bury me here. But I said, one thing I know, he said he's got the power to raise what dies. And I'm counting on him resurrecting me and this church. If not, I'll be gone before long and you can find another pastor. Well, that was 19, about 89. How many years has that been? And after that, after that, things started. We lost a bunch of people. And then all of a sudden, God began to bring more different people, began to bring color, began to bring people. And pretty soon, Black people started wanting to go, come to this church. Why? And I've had other guys come in and say, how do you attract black people? I said, well, get some black grandchildren. <laughs> That's a good start. How about getting a black son-in-law? I'll tell you how to integrate. Someone said, well, you're a racist. Oh, get out of here, honey. I'm Abraham. I've got them of every tribe and stripe. <laughs> and we're from pure redneck stock, honey. Missouri and Oklahoma doesn't produce anything but rednecks as a whole. But Christianity is bigger than where you're from. Christianity is bigger. But after that, we begin to see a different blend. I mean, ethnic group. We begin to find out men and women would come. Our child's in trouble. We heard this church deals with that. I said, you're not kidding. We major in it. We weep a lot. 
Maybe you look at where a church that never weeps over their lost kids and their lost children because they're the upfront, uptight church. Well, we're not. This pastor, I'm a broken man when it comes. I can't save my own grandchildren. Can you? Well, I don't want to think this building's going to do it. My salary won't do it. It's only the power of the living God that raises the dead can save and change your family. And I want to say to you in love, we need to be inviting all those we can because the same folks are showing up everywhere. We need to pack this place out because Jesus is coming soon. I don't know where the next massacre is going to take place, but it's a terribly dangerous world. Jesus is going to come, and if he doesn't come soon, we're going to die soon. One or the other, we're going to see his face. It's no time to be asleep or to be quiet. So, don't think God's given up on you, on you and today. If you're a person that wants prayer, I want to give you one of these promise cards. We'll put them in the bulletin and tell you uh, to hang on to God if you're in the midst of pressures that are about to drown you. The God of all comfort wants to comfort you. And the God of all mercies, he wants to come down and say, I just wanted you to give up relying on the flesh, relying on horses, relying on family. I'm enough for you. I want you to rely on me. Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I El Shaddai? Am I enough? Am I all sufficient? We used to sing a chorus, He's all I need. But I'm afraid we sing this way, He's all I need. But he's not all I want. (laughs) Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. And I got to give me, give me, give me list. Give me this, give me that, give me that, and I'll be happy. Is he all you need? Don't don't say it if you don't mean it. You don't have, don't, don't amen it. He has a way, as Deborah taught, us. I did not find out he was all I needed until he was all I had. Is he enough? Is he enough? Is he enough? I listed 18 reasons why God brings problems in our life. I'm wrestling with whether I continue next week and give you some more things to lift your head. Father, strengthen those whose personality will not let them go public with their pain. They're private. They've internalized it, and you alone know. I ask that you would pour your mercy and your comfort in them and assure them that you're enough leaning on the everlasting arms there's plenty of strength and those who are under the pressures and want to cling to you I pray today that you will be near the Lord is a very present help in the time of trouble. Psalms 46.1, we claim it right now. Whoever's in trouble, I want them to come today. And the elders, we're going to pray with them. I want to give them one of these promise cards personally that I may put my arms around them, maybe weep with them, and say, God is enough for you. God is enough. God is enough. God is enough. God is enough. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all 
I need. Sing it, church. I can't hear you. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. Let's stand. If you're someone here, we're going to sing it again. You come. I, I want to hand you this. And I'm going to pray with you. And I want elders to come and stand with me. We'll pray with these people. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. Now wait, wait, before you go, if when we gather together, meet for the purpose of stimulating one another to love, and good works and encourage Hebrews 10 24 now before you leave and say anything and talk about lunch and where you're going to eat you ought to try some of you it's going to be brand new can you think of one encouraging word to say to a brother or sister wait, 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 wait maybe we need to pray again can you say what think of where you've been what you've gone through what did you learn through it all that could encourage another person not to give up, not to run, not to quit. If you could, if you would, a broken heart is on the pew right where you're sitting. They're looking for somebody to say an encouraging word. I would to God we could employ all of you. God can use you before you leave this place today. If you can encourage, do it. Don't say one discouraging word. Don't talk about the restaurant. Don't tell us about your dog. And don't tell us about your mother-in-law. Please tell us about your God. God bless you. Whoever wants prayer, you come.